Red Salute. Welcome back to the Manifesting Podcast. Just a quick rundown of what we'll be talking about this week. In the headline segment, we're going to be covering two stories. I'll be doing a little piece about the article from the New York Times by Jason Barker entitled, Happy Birthday, Karl Marx, You Were Right. I'm not going to be focusing on the article per se. I'm going to be focusing on the reaction that it has received because there has been a lot of crying all over social media from right-wingers, kind of the usual suspects. So we will talk a bit about that. And we will talk about not only the right-wing's reaction to this article about Marx, but really really their reaction to communist ideology or leftist ideology in general. And we're going to pick that apart. So it's going to be me rambling and ranting. So I do apologize in advance for that, but that's what I'll be covering this week. Lauren will be back, of course, doing another piece. She's going to be discussing prisons, the drug war. So really uplifting stuff to look forward to there as well. In the back half of the show, of course, we're going to be doing part four of our Russian Revolution talk. We're going to be focusing in on Lenin's concept of the party, which is so, so important. We're going to be talking about the Vanguard Party and really getting into the uh, the nuts and bolts of what he was discussing. We'll be discussing the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, which is really where that split came from, is on the idea of the party. And just a quick note about the show. If you listened last week, you heard me mention that I wanted to start doing interviews, and we were still working out the details, but the plan was to have Jay Mufwad Paul on the show sometime mid-May. Well, that is officially a go. I will be conducting that interview next Sunday morning, so I will have that posted up by Sunday evening. We're going to be discussing the strike that JMP is currently participating in. We'll be talking about his books, obviously, The Communist Necessity, Continuity and Rupture, and Austerity Apparatus. We're going to be focusing in a little bit more probably on the communist necessity and austerity apparatus just because he has recently been on other podcasts talking at length about continuity and rupture. So I wanted to mix it up a little bit. So we'll be covering a whole host of topics, also including his upcoming book that he is co-authoring called Methods Devour Themselves. So there'll be a lot to discuss, so you can look forward to that interview uh, on the next episode. As always, if you have questions, concerns, comments, death threats, or credit card numbers, you can send those to me on Twitter at ManifestPod. I have the Facebook page up. Just look for Manifesting Podcast. I'm occasionally on Instagram. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash ManifestPod. As I've mentioned the last couple weeks as well, you should be able to find me on pretty much any podcast platform at this point. And speaking of, I know SoundCloud was having some technical issues last week, so there was a bit of a delay in in Stitcher in particular picking up the RSS feed. It didn't pick it up for like two days. So if you don't see the episode posted by Sunday night, you can check out another podcast platform and just go to SoundCloud itself. Like I always post them usually on Sunday evenings. So I know many of you listen through Stitcher and there was a delay there. So that's, that's what was going on. So again, if you don't see the episode posted by late Sunday night, you can probably find it somewhere else. Now, just briefly, before we jump into headlines, before we talk about Barker's article in the New York times and the rights reaction to it, something I completely forgot to mention last week, and I it's unforgivable almost, is the fact that obviously May 1st is May Day. We had May Day coming up, so I do hope you were able to attend an event near you if there was one. Really important to support May Day, the International Workers' Day. There's a lot of history behind it. I've done an episode on May Day before, kind of the history. Feel free to go and check that out. It's not as bad as some of the older episodes I have. So I just wanted, on a personal note, to really give some credit to the the Portland May Day Coalition. For those of you that don't know, I do this show out of Portland, Oregon, and I feel like, especially the last three or four years, the Portland May Day Coalition has really done an excellent job at trying to make May Day red again. 
I just feel like this coalition has done an extremely effective job of inviting people of color to speak, inviting people that are going to talk about the problematic nature of capitalism. There are some pro-communism speakers, pro-socialism, etc. So, you know, again, like a lot of credit to them. And one of the major changes they made this year, again, I'm not trying to make this super personal, but they moved the event out of downtown Portland. Now, downtown Portland, if you're not familiar, does have a lot of bougie white elements, especially around the Pearl District. So they moved the event out into the working class neighborhoods in southeast Portland, much to the dismay, of course, of those those white bougie liberals who like to go out for a day, pretend they're doing something effective, then go home and don't do shit all for the rest of the year. But um, also to the dismay of a couple of unions who are very white as well, let's be honest about that in Portland, who somehow decided that it was too far, that the trip was too far to go out to Southeast Portland to support these causes, where at the end of the day, I just feel like these causes were too radical for their tastes, which again, just speaks to the, the really fucking disgusting nature of unions, especially in this area. So again, at the end of the day, I, I feel really terrible about not being able to attend, but I just want to give a lot of credit to the Portland May Day Coalition for making these changes. They are making May Day radical again, and it is great to see. All right, so jumping into headlines, like I said at the top of the show, I want to do a little piece here about the right's reaction, the ghouls from the right, and their reaction to this this Jason Barker article in the New York Times, again entitled, Happy Birthday, Karl Marx, You Were Right. Now, anytime an article comes out from the left that's even seemingly pro-Marx or pro-communism, you have the same tired-ass responses from characters like Shapiro, Peterson, Peter Sweden is just all very predictable at this point. So I want to talk about how weak those counter arguments are and really something that maybe hasn't been touched on, how hypocritical these arguments are. So this was a tough week for the right. We had May Day, we had Marx's birthday on the 5th. So I knew many of these these fools on the right would be very up in their feelings about what was going on this week. And sure enough, that showed. So especially surrounding this article, it came out in the New York Times, and we got the very, again, predictable responses from characters like Peterson in Sweden. And Peterson in general, like, it was just fucking gold this week. So as soon as the article comes out, he has this response, like, so offended, which that, again, is ironic, but so offended that the New York Times would, would put out this article, you know, putting Marx in decent light. As Peterson said, this is a man who, whose ideas have led to the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. How could the New York Times do this? So let's break this down a little bit. I saw this article and I knew like somewhere in the responses there would be somebody who said, hey, hey, Jordan Peterson, do you have any evidence of this, these hundreds of millions of killings? You know, is there any evidence? You're, you're an intellectual, right? So surely you have some sources to back this up. And sure enough, somebody asked that question. And I knew Peterson would take the bait just because that's the kind of guy he is. And I was like, oh, Jordan Peterson, do it for me. Please fucking do it. And he did. He did. His source that he relied on for this quote unquote hundreds of millions of deaths from communism was the Black Book of Communism. And I just lit up like a fucking Christmas tree as soon as I saw this. For those of you that don't know, the Black Book of Communism is one of the most debunked ridiculous sources that that discuss the supposed hundreds of millions of deaths caused by communism this is a book that even the authors several of the authors themselves have distanced themselves from they don't agree with the material that's in it this is a book that 
that talks about how the deaths during World War II, how the Soviets killed the Nazis, they counted the deaths of the Nazis when they were fighting the Soviets as victims of communism. So this book is a real fucking joke. And even people who, who do have, you know, on the right or maybe are semi-right, who, who are anti-communist at least, they won't even touch this book with a 10-foot pole. But Jordan Peterson, the intellectual of our times, our white fucking hero, use this as a source i just it just encapsulates jordan peterson perfectly now jordan peterson and if you are somehow unfamiliar with him congratulations to you you are all the better for it this is a guy who constantly talks about cultural marxism neo-marxism the snake pit of marxism that is the modern day university and this is a dude who clearly does not know the first thing about Marxism or communism. And that's why he will never debate a Marxist worth their salt. He understands, I feel like either A, he doesn't understand. I mean, that's a possibility too. This, at the end of the day, is not the most intelligent guy in the world, clearly. Or B, understands that his worldview, what he's espousing, what he has built his living on, would be absolutely annihilated when it's put under a Marxist lens. So... So just Jordan Peterson using the Black Book of Communism unironically was maybe the most perfect thing that's ever happened. So let's even move beyond the factual inaccuracies, of which there are many on the right, as it concerns this argument. Let's take them at their word. You know, every time there's an article that comes out about Marx or communism, they will bring out this old tired line, this Western propaganda about how gazillions of people were killed. This number seems to be ever increasing, depending on the article. But let's believe them. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt and assume that they are very concerned about hundreds of millions of people that have died under a particular ideology. What makes this argument so ridiculous is look at the, the rest of their ideology, the ideology of Peterson and Sweden and Shapiro and the like. Their ideology supports imperialism, supports capitalism, supports the West going around the globe and blowing up people of color. So at the end of the day, they don't give a fuck if people die. So for them to rely on this false moralism about how communism killed hundreds of millions of people, they do not care if people die. Their ideology espouses the fact that people need to die in the interest of the West. So again, even putting aside the facts, the hypocrisy involved here is just staggering. And speaking of hypocrisy, Let's remember that this is the same group of people that seemingly can't differentiate between criticism and censorship. So now they're coming out and criticizing this article about Marx. Marx, a man who simply wrote down his ideas, and in their eyes led to those ideas led to the, the deaths of hundreds of millions of people. This is the same thing they're criticized for, that their ideas are causing harm, and they cry about it every single day on social media. So it's just, these at the end of the day, these are people who make their living off writing articles, books, and shit that make white, middle-class, mostly male people feel better about their toxic viewpoint. So they are not to be taken seriously. They are clown shoes. All right, so that's going to wrap it up for my portion of headlines. Like I said at the top of the show, Lauren is going to be back with a piece about the drug war, prison culture, etc. So here is Lauren with her new piece. So the story that caught my eye this week is actually a piece of good news, although I'm still going to be a cynical bastard about it and find the negative side. Last week, the city of Seattle filed a motion to vacate hundreds of marijuana convictions going back 30 years. 
slowly, 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 marijuana is being legalized state by state, although it is still against federal law. And incrementally, local governments are taking the first steps to rectify the grievous wrongs inflicted by the quote-unquote war on drugs. A little background on this bullshit, this was the brainchild of President Nixon. He left office in disgrace, on the cusp of impeachment, and pretty universally despised, and yet his hateful legacy lives on. His initial programs were widely expanded on by another grinning sociopath, President Reagan. The Kipper was a busy guy, what with the Reaganomics and the jelly beans, but he still took the time to stoke the anti-drug hysteria that reached a fever pitch in the 80s and 90s, and incarceration rates has escalated dramatically. Throughout all of this, it doesn't seem like any of the dutiful soldiers in this never-ending war ever paused to consider why drug use is so prevalent in the U.S. Why is it that so many people in this supposedly great nation seek oblivion? I, for one, place the blame solely at the feet of our terrible god, capitalism. As imperialists, we consider ourselves vastly superior to developing nations, and yet we have so many people here who don't have access to adequate medical care. Prescriptions, whether for physical pain, chronic health conditions, or mental health issues, can be costly and hard to obtain. It's easy to see why the illegal alternatives, fairly accessible and frequently cheaper, make for a tempting option. And for so many others, I would wager drug activity, either using or selling, is a direct response to our oppressive economy. Being poor fucking sucks. You work hard at your likely demeaning, almost certainly exhausting job for which you are paid too little. You struggle to put a roof over your head, to eat enough, to prepare for the things you can't plan. And all the while, you know that if an emergency happens, you're fucked. You've got no safety net. And to top it off, everyone treats you like you're a fucking idiot. Like the only reason your circumstances aren't better is because you just don't understand capitalism or you just missed that day at school. It's bullshit. And you struggle to find meaning in your days, to find your place in this world where there's so much for the fortunate born, but so little for you. It's, it grinds you down. It's easy to see why people would seek an alternative and escape a way out. But the government is not so understanding. As of 2018, the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world, with almost 2.3 million people behind bars. Almost half a million people are locked up for drug offenses, and of that number, approximately 456,000 are held for possession, trafficking, or other nonviolent drug offenses. In other words, almost all of them. And what can they do when they're released? Their lives were hard before. Having a criminal record makes it all the more difficult to find decent housing to secure a job. Forget selling weed legally. Anyone convicted of a felony will almost certainly be barred from working at dispensaries. That's a rich man's game now, too. By most standards, this war on drugs has been a massive, costly failure. But it was never meant to eradicate drug use or to save lives. There was an interview published a few years ago with former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman with a pretty notable quote that I'll read in its entire entirety, so bear with me here. Um, he said, and I quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. 
end quote. Really, the only surprising thing about this is its candor. The U.S. has a long, troubling history of cloaking its misdeeds under moralism. We are wolves dressed as Puritans. And in this case, it has been devastatingly effective. Despite fairly equal rates of drug consumption, people of color are consistently overrepresented in our jails and prisons, while white people are consistently underrepresented. To cite a, a specific example, black people make up 40% of the incarceration, incarcerated population, but represent only 13% of U.S. residents. That math doesn't add up to anything better than calculated racism. So vacating marijuana convictions is a start, but I fear that for many states it will also be the end, and it doesn't even begin to fix the damage done. A better solution would be to decriminalize all drug possession. Portugal did it in 2001, and subsequently the rate of new HIV infections has fallen off dramatically, as have overdose de death rates, drug use, and obviously incarceration rates. Decriminalization alone isn't a quick fix. It doesn't address the root cause of addiction or correct economic disparity. And I will note that Portugal also has a free public health system and extensive treatment programs. We could have those too if we gave any shits at all about actually helping people instead of just locking them up. Now it gets a little dicier when it comes to dealing. It's still illegal to traffic and sell drugs in Portugal. They have been very careful to stay within the UN's drug convention system. And I don't, I don't have an easy answer for this. I personally don't think selling drugs is a big deal. Um, obviously, the violence surrounding it is abhorrent, but how much of that would be eliminated by fully decriminalizing the drug trade? Negating the need for turf wars would probably go a long way towards making the profession a little safer. But I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't have the perfect solution. I wish I had a good answer to end my piece with, but I don't. I just know that these are conversations we need to have. And as a country, we owe our people better. Maybe one day, post-revolution, we will be better. So that will wrap it up for headlines this week. Once again, I hope your Ushankas and AKs are in place, because we're going to be talking about part four of the Russian Revolution. <laughs>
So before we jump into the recap of what we discussed last week about the Russian Revolution, I just wanted to make a quick note here. So I know we've been really going at a snail's pace so far. I thought it was important to really lay the groundwork to talk about Russia pre-revolution, to talk about a little bit of Lenin's history. And when I was planning all this out, my original intention was for this episode, part four, to be maybe 20, 25 minutes long, at least just for the Russian Revolution part. I wanted to not only talk about that second Congress of the League of Struggle, I also wanted to discuss the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, which we will do today. But I was planning on carrying that over even to discussing the first Russian Revolution, which took place in 1905. And that was still my plan up until figuring out that I was going to be doing the JMP interview officially next week. So I've been working pretty diligently on those questions, trying to write stuff that not only he will engage with, but you will want to engage with as well. So I've been working pretty hard on that. I'm a person that does have a full-time job, uh, for better or worse. So I, I do wish I had a little more time to commit to this. But I thought it would be weird to go past the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, kind of leave it like halfway through the Russian Revolution in 1905, just because we're probably not going to be able to do a piece on the Russian Revolution next week because of the interview. So I thought we would just talk about the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, leave it there. It's kind of a nice cliffhanger. Leave it on the doorstep of the Russian Revolution of 1905, again, the first one. And I just feel like that was a better stopping point. So hopefully that's something you agree with as well. So just a brief recap of what we talked about last week. We talked about how Lenin was expelled from Kazan University for revolutionary activity. He moved to St. Petersburg and formed this League of Struggle, again with the intention of bringing together the Marxist groups and the unions that were sprouting up throughout Russia. Now, this League of Struggle had their first Congress, but as we know, Lenin was not able to attend because he was exiled in Siberia, much like I was not able to attend May Day because I was working. These are not the same things at all, but give me a break. And so you had this Congress come together, and the desired result was just not there. No type of party came out of this thing, especially a party that would be able to challenge the Tsar. Lenin was disappointed in this. He saw that more or less these, these legal Marxists and these economists were able to win the day, they were able to spread their message and really muddy the waters. So again, there was no party that came out of this first Congress that would have been strong enough to challenge anything. Now you had Lenin in exile kind of get together his group of outcasts and they were going to brainstorm a way to disseminate their message. They saw the sloppy result of the first Congress without Lenin's leadership. So they said, before we have a second Congress and just kind of have the same result, Let's really get our message out there. Let's try to disseminate the necessity to the Russian people that you have to come together with the Marxist. All the union members must come together to form a really cohesive party. And they had a brilliant idea. They started an illegal newspaper called Iskra. Again, Iskra in Russian stands for spark. And this, this was to be the spark that would start the revolution. And Lenin and that group were very successful in disseminating this paper. It wasn't without its struggles. I mean, the Tsarist government tried to crush it at every turn. Anytime it was printed in Russia, they would find out who was printing it, shut it down. So eventually Lenin and his crew had to have this thing printed in other countries and have it smuggled in on really thin paper. So they were just very clever in their ways that they that they were able to get this paper out to the Russian people. And it just really speaks to the persistence of Lenin. I mean, this is a guy, after being exiled several times, after having his paper crushed, after, you know, not being able to attend the first Congress and having this shitty result, he was just so persistent. He was not going to give up because he knew what the stakes were. 
So eventually we get to the second Congress. Again, after Lenin has disseminated his message, he's kind of won that line struggle. And sure enough, out of this party, they were able to form the Russian Labor Party, again, with the goal of uniting the Marxists and the unions and forming one big party that's going to be able to challenge the Tsar. They were successful in this, seemingly successful. Of course, after the second Congress, we had the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks really over the question of how to organize the party, and that's what we're going to talk about this week. During this time period is when some of Lenin's really best work came out. He was struggling against these Mensheviks, and the question again came down to how do we organize this party, who's going to be a part of this party so we can move forward. Now in Lenin's eyes, he believed in a vanguard party. Now, what he was espousing was the fact that there needed to be more or less professional revolutionaries who were not workers who had time to focus on revolution 24-7. They were to make revolution their job, and they would be split off a little bit from the, the working class just so they were able to focus on that work. These are people that were going to be really great writers, were able to deal with the tactical police, etc. Again, professional revolutionaries at the end of the day. And Lenin wasn't saying that they should be separate from the masses. He did want them to be their own group so they could do this work. But he often talked about going to the masses, speaking with them, learning from them, etc. So they were including all the masses. They just knew, at least in Lenin's eyes, that it was so important to have this vanguard party that would really lead the way. You needed to be a professional revolutionary if you were to get anything done. In retrospect, we can look back and see that Lenin was correct about that. On the other hand, you had the Mensheviks who were really calling for this big tent party, more or less. They were saying anarchists, other forms of leftists, even high school students should be able to be a part of the party, that it was to be completely exclusive, and that there should be, you know, autonomy should kind of rule the day. If this sounds familiar, it's because something we're still unfortunately dealing with as organizers today. I mean, when you have communists coming in to organize with this laser focus about, okay, we need to come together and get shit done, and you have anarchists and other leftists saying, no, man, you know, we got to have autonomy, etc. This is why Occupy Wall Street fucking, you know, fell apart so quickly. This is why organizations that try to involve every viewpoint don't get anywhere, nothing ever gets done. The same thing that Lenin was fighting about, uh, fighting with the Mensheviks about in the early 1900s is something we're still dealing with today. So that is pretty disappointing. But again, you had the Mensheviks calling for, you know, everybody, anybody that wants to join the party should be able to do so. Results be damned, really. And Lenin obviously wasn't having any of this. He understood the importance, again, of having this group, this vanguard of professional revolutionaries. He knew that they needed to get shit done. That was the goal. The goal was revolution, and he was going to do whatever it took to get there. So you had the initial split, and the Bolsheviks, which means majority in Russian, they were the majority. Most people sided with Lenin, understood where he was coming from, etc. And you had the Mensheviks, which in Russian means minority. So they were still kind of holding out here. And unfortunately, this is where you saw Plekhanov. Again, we talked about him. He was responsible for even really bringing Marxist works to Russia in the first place. He kind of sided with the Mensheviks after some time. And this is where we saw Trotsky really show his true colors initially as well, because he sided with the Mensheviks, again with this idea that it should be a big tent party. So even though Lenin won that initial line struggle against the Mensheviks, you had people siding with Lenin, understanding the need for this vanguard party. 
over time, the Mensheviks were really able to poison the well. They were pretty effective in this. They were able to win people over to their side. Again, saying that Lenin, even calling it Leninism at this point, was just too hardcore. You know, he wasn't being inclusive enough, even though he did stress, again, Lenin stress that going to the masses, learning from them was very important. They thought that he was trying to cut the masses out. They just wanted to be this little group on high, these god figures who thought they could lead the revolution. So again, they really poisoned the well here smeared Lenin and his ideas without really engaging with them. So after some time, the Mensheviks kind of took power back as, it, as far as it comes to this argument. Even people that were working on the paper Iskra started to side with them. You had Mensheviks taking over control of the paper, writing these articles against Lenin and Leninism. So they really went out of their way to try to smear Lenin because they were just painting him again as this exclusionary hard ass. But Lenin, you know, as we said before, he's one of the most persistent fucking guys in history. He was not going to let this get him down, and he would eventually win the day with his message of a vanguard party. So just looking at time, unfortunately, we'll have to leave it there this week again. I wish this could have been a much longer piece. Um, when we come back, not next week, obviously, because we're doing the J. Mufawad Paul interview, but the following week, we'll go ahead and wrap up this conversation about that split, and then we'll really get into the first Russian Revolution of 1905, which is just infinitely interesting, so plenty to look forward to there. As always, if you want to talk with me, just shoot the shit, ask me some questions. You can find me generally on Twitter for the most part. If you have ideas you want either me or Lauren to talk about in a future episode, for sure let us know. Again, Twitter is usually the best route to do so. You can find me on Facebook and the Manifest Dream podcast page. And if you want to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash manifestpod. So until next week, Red Salute.